Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 162 with my guest, Monica Little. This episode is sponsored by NatureBox, a monthly subscription service that delivers better snacks straight to you. Not just any snacks, awesome snacks. No high fructose corn syrup, no hydrogenated oils, no artificial flavors or colors, smarter snacks. Visit naturebox.com slash happy hour to get 50% off your first box. I'm Paul Gil Martin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show ain't meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I ain't no therapist. This ain't no doctor office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Trust me, I will never do that again. Rest assured, if you come back, you will not have to endure that again. The website for this show, excuse me, I got a little bit of a cold. <clears throat> the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. You can support the show there. You can join the forum. You can read blogs. And you can also take surveys and see how other people filled out surveys. Um, let's get to it. These are some, you know, I love to kick off the show with these, the struggle in a sentence survey. Um, this one is filled out by... A woman who calls herself Polly Molly Doodle All a Day about her depression, like everything is so boring, I'd just rather go to sleep. About her sensory disorder, literal orgasmic like feeling or painful goose fleshed nausea. Wow, that has got to be difficult. Um, this is filled out by Iona about her anorexia, knowing that the ability to make it through the morning and afternoon on black coffee may be that day's greatest achievement. About being a sex crime victim, trying to push the guilt off myself like I couldn't with him. Well, that is deep. Um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Van. 
um, about her general uh, anxiety disorder. So worried about worries that all that is left is more worries. About her codependency. Cannot, cannot make even a seemingly meaningless decision without the input and permission of another. About her perfectionism. Failure is around every corner, lurking. One mistake and he will swallow you in his darkness. Uh, this is from Blue Rose, who writes about her depression. My mind is a frail, bedridden woman who is being dragged by the ankles through my daily life. About her binge eating. I will be empty until I'm full to bursting, and my shame is threatening to crawl up my throat. About being a sex crime victim. You called me beautiful then, and the word has been a solicitation ever since. This is uh, filled out by a transgender male to female who writes, um, uh, and she calls herself my other me, about her depression, a dull numbness that creeps up on me, reminding me that I've forgotten what it's like to be truly content. About her codependency, it's sad to think that others might see what we have as unhealthy. It's worse to think they might be right. About being a sex crime victim, I am probably insignificant to you but you changed my life for worse in more ways than you can imagine. About um, being trans, uh, feeling a traitor to others in the trans community because I don't have the courage to try to be who I really should be. And this is filled out by Matt, who writes about his compulsive eating, a gnawing hunger that is never satisfied, even when I am uncomfortably full about his PTSD. Public places feel like a water hole must feel um, to the prey animals on the savannah. Thank you guys for that. And um, I just want to read a quote from Viktor Frankl, um, whose book Man's Search for Meaning is one of the most profound things I've ever read. And uh, he writes, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And that is how my wife's next birthday cake will read. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. I cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with Monica Little, who is a, a listener uh, who contacted me, uh, what had it been, about a year ago, almost, I think it was almost about exactly. A year ago, yeah. And where would be a good place? You're um, from where? I'm from Laguna Beach, California, mm-hmm. which is Orange County. Um, I currently live in San Diego with my husband, who's in the Navy. And uh, we have a 10 month old. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. In fact, your, your first 
email to me you were eight months pregnant that's I believe. right oh my gosh that's so yeah. crazy <laughs> yeah that's right um i was going through it i think <laughs> yeah. emotions and uh yeah so went through that it's been the hardest thing i've ever done in my life um if you want to have children, definitely think about it for a really long time because it's really, really hard and challenging. Uh, is it a boy or a girl? It's a girl. Yeah. Yeah. What's your name? Her name is Bella Jean. Oh, that's Bella a Jean, name. Yeah. yeah. Little country girl. <laughs> you are um, half Mexican, half Italian. Half Italian. Yeah, oh my God. Scary. No lack of no lack of passion. I know, in your... it's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> um Should we start from the beginning? Yeah. Um like the beginning, beginning. Yeah, actually, before <laughs> before we do that, okay. um, what are some of the issues that you struggle with? Because I think it would be interesting to know what those are as okay. we hear your uh, what what was it the box that was checked when you were in therapy that you were like, oh, oh my god, severe anxiety disorder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was terrified. I was eleven, so that was scary to see that. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's my biggest issue, honestly, is um, anxiety. Uh, I struggle with it on a daily basis. Um, I have issues with intimacy. Um, I have drug issues, drug addiction issues. Um, I have, Are you sober? Um, I'm not sober. I don't do drugs anymore. I do drink occasionally. Um, I have had my battles with alcohol, though, and who knows what will happen there. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> you keep. Uh, you have a fear of vomiting, I and you do. keep you keep bags keep in the car. Bags in my car. Oh my gosh. You were so relieved when you heard another guest had that same I think it was yes. Gina Grad. Oh my gosh I, yes and which is crazy because I listened to her podcast and I've never heard her talk about that and I didn't think anybody else had that um, but yes I do have bags in my car and they actually came in handy once and I puked yeah. on the freeway driving home from LA into in the my, bag into the bag sweet yeah. so <laughs> uh, Steve Agee uh, is a guest who who has that oh, a really? terrible fear of vomiting really terrible you know what? it's like a medical condition I yeah. heard somebody talking about it on the on a TV show yeah I, it's terrifying yeah yeah that and diarrhea <laughs> You have a fear. Well, I think everybody yeah. has a yeah. healthy fear of yes. diarrhea, yes. especially on the freeway. Yes, I have or, a friend who shit his pants on the way to a job interview. No. He had a suit on. No. Had to turn around and go home. No. Well, clearly had to yeah, turn well, around and go home. He didn't go to the interview? Yeah. My favorite are the ones where the people shit their pants a block away from home. They yeah, just can't make can't it. can't take it anymore. Yeah, I've never done that. But I do have a fear of just being in public places and having to go to the bathroom so bad and I can't find one or I have to like push people out of the way to get to the restroom. That sweat starts coming out of yes. your brow and you're like, oh I'm not going to make it. Yes. I'm not going to make it. I don't know why. I had that happen to me when I was jogging one time at night and I was like, I'm not going to make it home. And I just found, this, you? Dark, found this dark area on, on a person's front lawn about a block oh. away from my house. Oh my God. And... Uh, it was actually kind of a liberating feeling. I mean, I felt bad that I had to do this on their uh, on their lawn, yeah. <laughs> but it was there's something kind of awesome about shitting outdoors. Oh my God. <laughs> have you ever shit outdoors? So, I have. I don't. No, I have not. Well, but, you've never gone camping. Then. No, I hate camping. Oh. I hate camping. But I imagine that person woke up the next morning and opened their front door and thought. <laughs> 
what the hell happened here? There must be a huge dog in this neighborhood. <laughs> Shit on my lawn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it was not dainty. Let's put it that way. I hate to start the, yeah, wait, the interview uh, talking about like bowel this. movements. I, uh, okay. I apologize, but uh, no, I don't apologize. Fuck no, it. It's a part yeah. of. It's a part of. Uh, being, we all do it. Being human, <laughs> we just all don't do it on people's, people's lawns a block away. But a lot of people I know who jog, um, especially people who jog uh, far distances, like. Uh, marathon runners and really? uh, we have a listener who's an ultra uh, marathon runner and she says that there are many times that she just has to pull off the really course or the trail and uh yeah she's used to digging a hole and uh wow doing her business wow but yeah it's, all right you know well more power to her. another thing we got to <laughs> surrender to yes exactly. we don't have any control over exactly um so so you've got some some issues and and i like by the way that you are in the middle of some of these issues because I get emails from listeners that are like, it's awesome that many of your guests are on the other side of their stuff, but I really want to hear from somebody who is in the middle of it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely in the middle. I, I feel like I've been in the middle of it for a while. I think I've, I've been in the middle and then thought I've been over it and then... I find myself back in the middle and things come up, things happen, things trigger. Um, you know, so yeah, definitely going through. You know, I, I think it's a lifetime of that. I it think is. That, that you know that thing they talk about with the peeling the layers of the onion, but yeah. but we're always moving forward. That's yes. what I feel like is yeah. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully yeah. We're always moving. Forward. And I mean, you know, we take a few steps back sometimes, but that yeah. doesn't mean, you know, I had a therapist explain it to me once that you're going down a road, you're looking at the end of the road is your destination. It's that house with the white picket fence, whatever it is mm -hmm. for you. Um, and there's side streets. And sometimes you get lost down a side street. It doesn't, it's a dead end, that side street. You'll come back and you'll get back on the main road. But how many side streets is it going to take? We don't mm -hmm. know, you know, but eventually you'll get there. And hey, you might even get there and then get bored and turn around and go down another side street. I don't know. But I don't ever want to stop learning, you know, about myself and about why I do the things I do. And I, I just, I think when you stop doing that, you're dead, you know? So I don't know that we'll or, ever fully be healed from it, but or you'll wish you were dead. That's, yeah, you'll that's wish the place you I'm most dead, scared yeah. of of yeah. going to is the place where I don't want to be alive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've struggled with a lot of depression and anxiety, but I don't know that I've ever really really felt, you know, for me that I wanted to be dead. So yeah, that is a terrifying place for me to think about, but And you know, as though as those layers come off, uh, yeah, there's an an initial pain, but there's also a release. Uh, from it, and I think people that are afraid to go to therapy, they think it's just going to be all experiencing that pain again yeah. without any feeling of lightness or of joy. Yeah, at, at, at discovering something or let, being able to let something go. Yeah, I mean, what, like burdens being lifted. You know, what a relief! It it is a great and just just sharing and sometimes just saying something out loud <laughs> that you've never said out loud before because you've been terrified um, can bring so much relief and just like a deep breath of like, oh my god, I've been hiding that or keeping that, even hiding it from yourself for so long. You know, and, and there's something so therapeutic about that. What What are some of those phrases that you said oh out gosh. loud that that terrified you to say, um, or that took you back when you were like, "Oh my God, I." I 
Well, I mean, you know, I think a big one that I'm going through right now is um, kind of realizing that my mom, my mother was never really a mother to me. Um, I always thought, oh, I have the best mom. She's my best friend. Da, 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 da. And uh, she's going through like a midlife something right now. And it's brought a lot to light of how selfish she was my entire life. Um, I feel that she didn't really even want me and she would just kind of hand me off to people. And um, my husband has, you know, he hears all these stories and he has really helped me to see that she was never a mother to me. And I think coming to that realization has been very painful, but also very liberating for me. And that, well, this makes sense. This is why I am, this is part of the reason why I acted the way I did for so many years, because I had nobody guiding me in the right direction, you know? Um, so there's a relief in feeling like, wow, I'm not just some loony who, you know, had everything handed to her and screwed it all up, you know, mm -hmm. which that could be the case too, who knows? But <laughs> the way I see it now is, you know, she had a big part to play in, in, in the destruction that I did in my life. And I think a lot of people think that, that to, to ha feel pain or to validate dysfunction that we have as adults we have something had to have happened to us as children as opposed to the lack of healthy things happening yes. for us yes i think you said to me in an email response that that indifference that our parents can have to you know have had in people's lives like that that almost hurts more sometimes than a physical abuser you know because they just don't care Right. <laughs> they just don't give you a shit. <laughs> it, it, you know, at least if like they're beating you or or something where it's clear they're outwardly sick. Yes. While you certainly feel like a piece of shit and it, it's its own damage. And I'm not comparing the two. That yeah, one is exactly. better yeah. or worse than the other. It's uh, to to feel that they were indifferent says that you don't matter in a different way and even worse you're not interesting that's the part that, yes. that to really makes you feel like you're you're not you're not enough you're not worth anything yeah. you know yeah like you're not even here go to your aunt's house or go here or go there you know yeah and, and by the way i'm not i'm not saying that it's um it, it's worse than than being beaten no. or, or any of that other stuff at, at all um, they're just different <laughs> just different it's just different but it's certainly its own its own thing that really needs to be um given validation for there to be any kind of chance yes. to move forward with it and i think that's where most people get stuck is they're like they 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 feel like nothing happened they feel like nothing yeah. happened they feel like nothing happened so why should they feel this way they got to suck it up and get over it and stop being a pussy or you know exactly. whatever but yeah i mean nothing happening is is just as bad yeah. you know so yeah so that's one of the big things um i don't know so much has happened in the last year so i think uh, you know, my, my grandfather went to trial for child molestation and I think that was a huge thing, um, that I never thought would see happen. Um, it brought a lot of healing for me personally, but I see it still doing a lot of destruction in my family. Um, How so? you know, they complained about it when 
he wasn't brought to justice um, when nobody was doing anything about it. They Nobody ever did anything about it, but they complained about it. Uh, and then when it happened, it's like now all they can talk about is how he's in jail and how he's in prison and how he's going to die there. And it's like, well, it, yeah. It, in a way that they're happy about? I can't tell. Honestly, I don't know if they're happy. I don't know if they're sad. I feel like some days they care about him, some days they don't. It's a really screwed situation because... You know, I mean, everybody knew this thing was going on in our family and nobody said anything or nobody did anything about it. He was at Thanksgiving dinner up until like three years ago, four years ago. So, yeah, I mean. What was that like sitting at the at, at the table with a person? Did you know that he he had done that to more than just you? Yes. Yes. Because this had come up multiple times in my life. I told my mom for the first time when, when it happened when I was a little kid and I was like four or five, told my mom she brought it up to him Um and he denied it, of course. Uh, she just kind of said, okay, <laughs> you know, I don't know, Monica's young. She doesn't know what's going on or whatever. Because kids make that stuff up. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I think she felt trapped. Um, there's no excuse for her behavior, but I think she felt trapped because her and my dad were splitting up and we were living with him and she had nowhere else to go. Living with your grandfather? Yes. Mm. So he was, you know, he offered to babysit, of course. Uh, so What a generous guy. Right? Mm. <laughs> God. Mm. So um, <laughs> I have to laugh because it's just so insane. But uh, she, by the way, you were saying that your mom mm-hmm. was also molested, but buried the memories, so she didn't she, wasn't really aware. Exactly, but she knew that he had done things like this in the past because her friends, when she was growing up, she caught him. They would spend the night, and she caught him crawling into bed with them, and she actually caught him, um, basically giving oral sex to one of the little girls when she was asleep and he saw that my mom was there and you know get out of here da, 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 you know that whole thing and everyone was terrified of my grandfather he was a drill instructor in the marine corps and he was mean he was a drunk and everybody was terrified of joe like everyone wow. yeah so these things just got pushed aside pushed aside through generations and it wasn't until the generation after mine um you know, something happened to one of my cousin's kids that somebody finally went to the police department. Somebody outside of our family. Somebody that was married to somebody in Isn't my family. Isn't that interesting? There has to be somebody outside yeah, the family. somebody outside, yeah. So You know what the striking to me is about the, the, the people that do things like that that are so brazen, for lack of a, a better word, um, is their ability to get their victim to freeze. Like that girl who was you know asleep she was mm-hmm. probably not asleep she yeah. probably woke up but because i've read so many surveys from people men and women who as children were violated in their sleep and they woke up yeah. but they were so terrified or frozen by what was happening that they didn't know yeah what Be- to do because you have no you don't guideline. have, the words. You yeah. have no words to say <laughs> yeah what are you gonna do like what do you so hey you know i mean i know it's insane and she actually testified the woman who that happened to, she testified at the trial. They brought her and a bunch of other people. I mean, it was insane. And, you know, so that's been a huge thing. My family going through that. And What did you feel like when he was uh, found guilty? Oh, my gosh. Um, I felt a lot of relief. I felt, like I, I was saying, I started to tell my mom when I was little. I told her again when I was 11 years old. And how, I, how long did it continue? 
Um, I don't remember it continuing after that. That's not to say that it didn't. I just don't remember it continuing after that. I do know that I don't remember a lot of my childhood, actually, until I was about 11 years old. Um, I do know that we all would spend the night over there and that we would play hide and seek. I remember that. And I do know that I had nightmares growing up, a recurring nightmare growing up of my grandfather, of us playing hide and seek, me finding him in the closet and him being a monster and like his face falling off and just terrible things, you know. Um, But I don't I don't know, honestly. And the only reason it would have stopped, I think, is because he was scared somebody was going to really catch him or something because I had said something. But uh, I know it continued you know, around me. I have cousins who are much younger than me that it continued with them. Um, and they remembered it. So, um, it felt great though when he was found guilty cause I felt validated. I felt like somebody finally heard me <laughs> cause I had been saying to my family for many years, uh, why is he still around? <laughs> you know, were there people in your family that believed you? I, other, other than the ones who it had happened, happened to. to, I think, Honestly, I think most of the people in my family believed me, but they weren't going to do anything about it. You know, he was, he was a terrifying person to yeah, confront. And, and you know, there's there's no excuse for their behavior, but um, those abusers do something psychologically to people, and there's like this a, a syndrome almost of you are not under their spell, but but in a way, yeah, you know. Um, like you feel like they love you in some way and you don't want to hurt them in another weird way. I don't know. It's, it's all, it's a big mess. It's a train wreck in somebody's brain. (laughs) Did you think that there was a part of your grandfather that loved you? Yes, I did. Because, um, I remember even when, gosh, when I was up until I was probably 20, 24, um, you know, at holidays, telling him I loved him and giving him a hug. And what would your body feel when you would hug him? You know, I don't think that it really felt anything. Um, I just, like everyone else, just pretended like nothing had ever happened, which is so screwed up. But that's what I was taught. Did you feel like, oh, Grandpa just has a sick part of him that? I can look past, I can forgive. I think so. Yeah, I think I wanted to forgive him. I wanted because I'll say this, he's obviously a horrible human being. But other than that, this is going to sound so fucked up. Other than that, he was a great grandfather. I mean, he was so awesome, you know. He he bought us things. He, you know, he made sure that he was that guy for us when he wasn't hurting us. So, yeah, we all were like, yay, we're going to Grandpa Joe's, you know. And so, yeah, I think I did. I think I wanted to forgive him. I wanted to pretend like it never happened because I thought, well, he can't really be that bad, you know. You know, the more I hear about people that that molest kids and the way they go about doing it, the more I question every single thing that they do around that yeah. that is nice and yes. think that they have to do those things to be able to keep their victim silent yes. and to win their trust 
and to be able to put that confusion in their brain. That's exactly what it is. It's confusion. Yeah, they do. It has to be so calculated. That's yeah. not just something that you just oops right. for like 30 years. <laughs> you know, I mean, he thought about it every day, I'm sure, which is insane because he against his attorney's advice, took the stand at his trial to defend himself and said that we were all making it up. There was like 13 victims there that we were all making wow. it up. Yeah. And that uh, my mom like started this witch hunt against him. And, you know, it's just so I wonder, is he is he insane or is he just that deep into his lie? Is there a difference? I don't know. Wow. That's fascinating. It's insane. How much that's time did he get? Oh, gosh, he got, um, gosh, I can't even remember now. I think he got 25 to life. Um, he's 70. Oh, so he's something. never getting out. No, and he has skin cancer now that he's being treated for. Um, but no, he's going to die in there. I wonder what was done to him as a kid, too. You know, I don't know, but here's something interesting. His brother, I think he's in Idaho or something, is in jail for child molestation. So obviously something happened to them, but the buck stops here. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. so that's, yeah, I don't even know what to say. I guess I don't have to say anything. You kind of can't make that stuff up. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's yeah. You don't have to say anything. I'm just glad that he finally went to prison. So it makes sense that the panic attacks would would start when you were. Yeah, I had a my kid. first one when I was 11. My first one when I was 11, we were at Fuddruckers. <laughs> have you ever been to a Fuddruckers? I have. Okay. Um, but it's like the sizzler of hamburgers or something? Is. is that what it is? Okay. Their their idea is that uh, more is better than quality. Yeah, exactly. Quantity is better than quality. Okay. So we were like in the line to like get our trays. <laughs> I just remember it being really loud in there. I think the acoustics are like really, really loud. And looking around at all the people... And feeling like I couldn't breathe, you know, and God, I was so young. So it's like, what, you know, I don't know what I would be stressed about or anything, but my mom kept asking me what's wrong. And I was like hot and I can't breathe. And I don't, I don't feel good, mom. I don't know. I, I can't breathe and I don't feel good. And I think I'm going to throw up or, and you know, she took me outside and she put me in the car and said, just hang out in the car. You'll be fine while they ate dinner. <laughs> People used to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I just stayed in the car with like the windows cracked and like got some fresh air and um did it, it help? Yeah, I mean it eventually went away. I I don't, I just couldn't be in there. Um and that was the first one. And after that I started going to therapy. They took me to a therapist and family therapist and yeah, they well, just That's good. Yeah, yeah. Was it, it was, their suggestion or were you asking It was go? their suggestion. And I think uh we had just moved to Laguna. Um my parents had split up when I was like 4. So we had just moved in with my stepdad and I had a new brother and sister and so I think they thought okay, this is a lot of change, you know. I still have lots of anxiety when I have change in my life. So, you know, let's get her in therapy and get this move, you know, smoothed out or whatever. So I started going and they just, you know, he diagnosed me with severe anxiety disorder. And I don't know that at that age in my life I had that already, but um, either way, I did end up having it. <laughs> so I have struggled with anxiety my entire adult life to this point. So what was your father and your stepfather like? Because I'm, I'm just curious, you know, with I'm, I'm curious as what kind of a partner um, <laughs> a woman 
who had buried mem- buried memories of that stuff that happened to her what what kind of a person she would pick and was there a similarity between the two men okay i think they're both completely opposite um my father is 100% italian um very chauvinistic i guess um you know my wife will have dinner on the table when i get home from work and um bossy controlling um talks down to people i don't know that he knows that he's doing it (laughs) similar to your grandfather in that yeah way yes yeah yeah similar to my grandfather in that way so the old mold of you you know marrying your mother your father yes exactly um and i don't know why my i mean i guess she married him because that's what she knew uh but it didn't last very long so when they they started getting separated i think when i was like three and then by the time I was four, they were fully apart from each other. Um, but I just remember before that, I remember them fighting and him getting very angry, having a temper. Um, they were both doing drugs and, you know, they weren't the healthiest people and lots of partying. You know, I remember parties at our house all the time. When How I was many little. kids in your family? I was the only one from them. Okay. Yeah. And then I have a stepbrother and a stepsister. And what was your, or yeah, is she still married to your stepfather? They just got divorced. They just got divorced. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what was he like and what were your siblings like? Okay. He um, is a Jewish attorney named Saul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not stereotypical. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, your mom likes variety, doesn't yeah, she? Totally. <laughs> um, you know, though, he's very uh, controlling. Mm-hmm. Um had his own law firm when he was like 27 and you know go getter um you know although you know catholicism and and, i know and mediterranean uh there's something that that uh italians and jews share i think in in terms of the the guilt and yes that's so true yeah it's true yeah so um he she hated him when she first met him most people do but he's amazing um, him and I are closer now than we've ever been. He's super awesome. And, uh, you know, we, I didn't like him when I met him and when I moved in with him and part of me still wanted my dad for some weird reason. He was totally absent at that point, but, um, I don't know. So my stepbrother and sister were good, except that they were going through their parents' separation and, um, their mom had been a major alcoholic and exposed them to a lot of that. And so my sister had been a mother to my little brother and she was just having a real tough time. So her and I didn't get along really when we moved in together because I thought, what a little brat, <laughs> throwing tantrums. <laughs> Poor girl had just come out of like a really traumatic uh. experience. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, you little brat, <laughs> you know, but I didn't want to move to Laguna Beach and we were from Garden Grove so I thought oh moving to this fancy town you know I'm not gonna be cool anymore I'm not gonna be hardcore or something I gotta go live by the ocean I know I was like so scared of all the people and I thought I'm gonna be the only Mexican kid here <laughs> so did you ultimately enjoy living in yes. Laguna? I mean Laguna is like I know I know one of the fucking greatest I'm places so to live I'm so lucky I'm so lucky to have grown up there it was absolutely beautiful and still is and yes I made most of my lifelong friends there. Um, but yeah, it was rough. It was rough in the beginning. I'm not going to lie. 
integrating a family, two very broken families <laughs> coming together and trying to make that work. And, you know, I think like my dad, um, Saul had an expectation of my mother to raise his children and to have dinner on the table when he got home. And, yeah. you know, she brought something up recently that she just remembered, you know, we would complain at the dinner table like, oh, I'm tired. I have too much homework. And she would say, be quiet. Saul doesn't want to hear that. He's had a long day at work. You know, and it's mm -hmm. like he probably would have wanted to hear it, but she just shut us up all the time because she thought she's got to do her wifely duties. And so I think she stuffed herself for a while. Like she wasn't really herself for a long time between my dad and her, the beginning of her marriage with Saul. So I, I, so often I hear stories of the, the woman who remarries um, and she brings her kid, you know, into that, into that marriage how they put their child's needs so far below the oh the, the needs of the person they're marrying, and there must be a tremendous fear, or or a kind of an inherent apology that I've brought these issues with yes. me, and I hope they don't make me less attractive to yes. you. Yes, yes, and I'll tell you that you know, like I said, uh, my brother and sister were coming from a very you know broken situation, and they needed a lot of mothering because their mother hadn't done any of it. Um, and Saul was trying to run a law firm. And I kind of got, you know, forgotten about in a sense. And um, I hated them for that. I hated Saul for that. And I acted out. And that's, you know, I started when I was 13 with, you know, smoking pot and smoking cigarettes and drinking. And, you know, it just got worse and worse from then. And nobody was paying attention. So I just kept on going on. <laughs> so, you know, there is that. And I think she felt she had to take care of his kids and that I'd be fine. You know, I was a tough kid. I'd be fine. I don't know if I've ever heard of a relationship. And then again, they probably wouldn't be guests on my show. But where <laughs> the, the parent brings that child to a, another marriage and is clearly placing their child's needs ahead of the needs of yeah. the, the new spouse. Yeah, I don't think... It works that way. <laughs> I think she felt lucky to marry Saul. Yeah. Honestly, because, you know, he had money and we had none. You know, when when she met Saul, we were living in a house with all my cousins and all my aunts, you know, and all the kids slept in one bed. <laughs> so for us to move to Laguna Beach and for me to have my own bedroom was huge. I would imagine, too, your grandfather and your father did them both being controlling did a real number on her self-esteem. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it definitely did. And this is, you know, this is nothing against Saul, um, but I think that she just muted herself because she was so scared of being rejected, you know, by somebody, like, as important as him or mm -hmm. as successful as him, and she just wanted to be the trophy wife, <laughs> you know. So is it is it fair to say you guys went from a, a, a blue-collar kind of life to a white-collar life? Yeah, um, we did, definitely, the way we lived. Um, but, you know, Saul didn't flash his money around. Um, you know, like when I turned 16, I didn't get a brand-new car, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and we didn't drive fancy cars. He bought used cars. I think he bought his first car when he was like 55 or, or his first new car when he was like 55. So it wasn't, yes, we lived in a beautiful place. We had a beautiful home and we took vacations and we were never without. Um, but he definitely instilled a work ethic in us and uh, we had to work for everything. 
So, and are you grateful for that now? I am so grateful for it. And like I said, him and I are very close now, and I love him like a father. You know, I love my own father too. We have a relationship now, but it's yeah, I'm very lucky that he was around because at that time my dad wasn't. <laughs> and as much as I hated Saul, he raised me. <laughs> so. Well, maybe he didn't do a very good job. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds it sounds like it to me. I mean, yeah. certainly you have issues like we all do. Yeah. But, um, the guess. fact that you're able to have compassion for um, people in your life that made mistakes, that to me is the ultimate sign that, that somebody's moving forward and, yeah. and that their heart is still open. It's not completely shut off. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So give me some, some snapshots of the teenage years. Any, any seminal moments stand out? And have we skipped over anything from childhood? No, I really don't remember a lot of it. Well, I remember, I remember my dad lived on Catalina Island, and for a long time I wasn't allowed to see him. Uh, he was into drugs and the court got involved and everything. And, um, when I finally was able to see him, I would go spend like parts of my summer over on Catalina Island. And I think I was like seven and I was there and he was a bartender and he, I guess he didn't have a babysitter for me or something. I can't remember exactly, but he left me at his house, which was always like a studio or, you know, I don't know, a room in somebody's house. <laughs> he left me and I... I was supposed to just like go to bed and I was terrified because I was alone and I remember he didn't have a phone so I walked down to the payphone at the hotel that was down the street and I called my mom crying saying I don't know where my dad is <laughs> and that I'll never forget that feeling I think that's when I first really felt abandoned you know by my father um, which I think played a huge part in my adult life <laughs> Uh, so that's a huge, that's one of the things I remember from my childhood. That's got to be so traumatizing for a seven-year-old kid. Yeah, I was terrified. Terrified. Especially a kid who had felt, experienced abuse from, quote-unquote, a loved one. I yeah. mean, you know, I say it often, but the, I, the message given to somebody abused by, a, a, you know, a relative who's an authority figure is... Yeah the world is not safe. Exactly. How do you not have panic attacks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, yeah, that was a big one. Um, teenage years. Um, I mean, I partied. I I hate to say I love Laguna. Did um, you ever party like it was 1999? I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love Laguna, but it is a breeding ground for drugs and alcohol and and the abuse of them um you know it's an artist community it's free loving and extremely liberal and just nobody it's a bunch of and money yeah a bunch of hippies with money <laughs> you know yeah. so um pretty much every weekend of my freshman year of high school i did acid i mean really? almost every weekend it was like our thing that's what we did yeah it was insane i don't know how most of us are alive I mean, we we honestly lost a lot of people when I was growing up, but before I was 18, we probably had lost 10 kids at our high school from drug overdoses. I mean, there was cocaine, there was acid, there was heroin, all of it. How old are you? 30, I'm going to be 34 next week. Oh my God. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, I graduated high school in 97, but I got into a ton of trouble even before high school in junior high. I was just smoking pot and drinking and sneaking out and, you know, we all wanted to be with the older kids and my mom caught me sneaking out multiple times and she sent me to a private Catholic high school. How she, long did that last? I went all four years, really? which is crazy because I went my freshman year and I hated it. And I begged to be put back into the public school in Laguna. And they said, fine. So they put me in and I hated the public school at Laguna and I wanted to go back to Catholic school. I think at that point, even though I was on drugs, I knew that school was important for some weird reason. I think that's like my obsessive thing. I thought, I've got to get good grades. I've got it. Probably the speed, but I've got to get good (laughs) grades. I've got to study. So I went back. Was religion uh, a, a part of your life? Yeah, um, coming from Mexican and Italian, definitely a lot of Catholicism growing up. Um, I like how I just assumed you were Catholic, I know. by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all Mexican, Italian? Um, a lot of Catholicism, and then um, Christianity came into my life when my grandmother was diagnosed with throat cancer, and she became a born-again Christian. Um, but yeah, we were forced to go to church all the time when we were kids. Um, Did it do anything for you? Did you feel anything? When I was a kid, um, no. I mean, I wish they would have put us in like Sunday school or whatever, like the kids thing, because they didn't. They would make us sit with them in the big church. And I mean, for a kid, when you're like six years old. So unrelatable. So unrelatable. And like, so we would just talk to each other and then we'd get in trouble. And, you know, so it made us hate church. Um, And I know that there was probably kids groups that they were doing, but my grandmother was like so old fashioned. She thought you're not sitting, you're sitting with us. Like you're old enough to sit here. You're old enough to be in church with the adults. So, um, no, when I was a kid, I don't think I felt anything except it was just something that you did because everyone else did it. And did you feel any different in high school? Um, no, (laughs) it made me going to a Catholic high school and having to take religion all four years and go to mass all the time. It made me hate it even more, um, especially because I was on drugs and, you know, I just thought this is so stupid, but I knew it was a good school. So I was like, I'm here for the education. That's it. Um, but it made me hate the system. Uh, you know, our Monsignor, uh, my freshman year got kicked out because, you know, he was accused of molesting football players, which is like so typical, right? In the Catholic church, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, I mean, it was so textbook. And then your life is a parade of stereotypes. It really is. I feel so dumb about that. But (laughs) um, I love that you take it personally. You take responsibility for it. Yeah, it's all my fault. (laughs) Um, So no, it made me hate it even more. I hated it. I hated it all. Have you ever felt any sense of uh, God in in your life? Yes. Okay. So when I was 21, 20, about 20 years old, um, I was suffering from major anxiety, like attacks that I would have to leave work. I felt like literally like the sky was closing in on me. Like I was going to suffocate in the clouds. Um, they actually put me through like a battery of tests. They thought I had asthma, adult onset asthma, because I couldn't breathe. Uh, and then they just realized it's just anxiety. 
Like you need to just calm down. <laughs> That's what you tell somebody with anxiety, right? Exactly. Just calm down. Um, so I was really struggling with that. And my mom was going to a church in Laguna and she said, why don't you come to church with me one Sunday? So I went to church and I got really involved. I don't know. Something just clicked in me. Um, I was probably, you know, I was looking for something. At was that it a time. Catholic church? No, it was a Christian church. Um, it was Calvary Chapel. And I was just looking for something at that time. And it felt good. I felt good. When was I was it there. more accessible than the kind yes. of ornate traditional? Yes. You know, the pastor was very charismatic and it was meeting at the high school in Laguna, so it didn't feel like this huge corporation, um, which it is, Calvary Chapel. But uh, <laughs> so it just felt comfortable, and I thought, I think I'm going to come back. So I got really involved actually with the college group, and I became a youth group leader, and I actually ended up being on staff at the church, and I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and then something happened at the church, you know, where the pastor was under fire for cheating on his wife and doing this and doing that and whatever, you know, whatever happened, the church disbanded kind of. And I remember even before that happened, all of us youth group leaders had like tattoos and colored hair. And, you know, um, I just remember them getting on us about that. Like, you know, this is Calvary Chapel. Like you're not supposed to Ex express the personality God gave you. Exactly. <laughs> so that was already causing problems. And I was already starting to get kind of upset and disenchanted about that. And I just remember thinking the whole time, like, why don't I feel like everyone else around me? Like, I feel like that person loves God. And I think I love God, but like, I don't feel like I love God. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like I was playing a part in a play and I think I was like I just wanted to belong to something and I I really just played the part so you believed in God but you felt like it was a club that you didn't yeah have membership into yeah because you didn't feel it in your soul yeah so you you did you blame yourself for that lack of connection I mean I don't know that I blame myself I think that I looked around at everybody and thought, are, I just started to question things. Are they faking it? Do they really feel it? Does anybody really feel it? You know? Um, and I thought, yeah, why not? I don't know if I was blaming, but why aren't I feeling it? What's wrong? What did I do? Or what's blocking the connection? Um, and then all that stuff happened with the church. And I thought, fuck it. It doesn't even, it's not even doesn't mean anything it's a joke like this is a business this isn't church is nothing but a business and that was my attitude and I was just really disenchanted and disheartened I felt like a lot of people that I really trusted including the pastor of that church had like really let me down you know um, I think I probably put too much in you know esteem to him anyways but uh, I just got over it and I went to culinary school. <laughs> Before we get to culinary school, uh, any seminal moments from, from the teenage years that... Um, I don't think anything that, you know, just... Well, actually, yeah, that's not true. Um, when I was 17, um, I had probably been on meth and speed for about a year. I started doing that when I was 16 years old and I was very into it. And, uh, my parents had sent me to rehab and 
I got worse in the seven days after I got out than I had ever been in the last year because uh, I wasn't ready. <laughs> and then, you know, after that, I told myself, I, that's it, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. But my parents had already, my mom and my stepdad had already made the decision to ask me to leave. And this is, I was a senior in high school. Um, I had gotten into Berkeley <laughs> and somehow, <laughs> probably affirmative action. And <laughs> um, I thought, I can do this. I'm going to get clean. I'm going to get clean. Like this is, I'm a senior. I got to graduate. I got to go to college, be a lawyer, you know? And my parents were out on the deck with my brother and sister and all my bags were packed. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? I mean, I I had a feeling, um, when I saw everything, but I thought there's no way there's no way I, I've, I've been clean for a week. <laughs> There's no way they're asking me to leave. <laughs> I love that too. How you know? Right? Is, we think is, we're so good. We think that today is a representation of the future, and yeah. that's part of the addict mind too. Is it we is. believe that the state that we're in at this moment is going to last forever, be it good or bad, yep. and we can't understand why other people don't trust us. Yeah, yeah, it's, and then we blame them. For yes. Not, it's so for true. not having more trust in us. I know. It's. I thought no way, and then I'm thinking to myself, I could have been using this whole week if they were going to kick <laughs> me out. You know, like I didn't even have to be clean. <laughs> so, anyways, we pull up, and you know, my brother and sister are crying, and oh, it's so horrible. I had put them in so many dangerous situations. Um. So yeah, they just told me you can't you can't be here anymore. It's not healthy for our family, and you're the one that's making it unhealthy. So you have to go. And I thought, well, where the hell am I going to go? And they said we called your dad, and he's on his way. And I thought my dad and I didn't really have much of a relationship at that time. Um. So I thought, okay, all right, fine. He lived on Catalina Island, so he came and picked me up, <laughs> and I looked out the window and I'll never forget that feeling of looking at them as we drove away and just thinking they don't want me you know and I mean it was my fault I wouldn't want me either <laughs> at that point but do you commend them for what they did by by drawing that boundary with you and giving you consequences I think I do I think so um yeah yeah because if they hadn't have done that, had done that, I don't, I think I would have just kept taking advantage of them. Yeah, I had been clean for a week, but I don't think I was going to stay clean. You know, that was only after my first, I went to rehab a second time. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's so true. You really have to be ready. And, you know, their rule was if you're not ready now, you can't be here. We're not, we can't wait for you to get ready around our small children. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, for an addict to get, sober or to want to get sober the pain has to outweigh the pleasure it does and the families that deny that withhold that the pain of consequences from their um their loved one are doing them totally. a great disservice I it's actually agree. one of the most unloving things that you can do i totally agree and and they did it for a long time and i think they just were in denial i think my mom was in denial and i think my stepdad didn't want to you know create a huge rift and so he just went along with it until he I think he couldn't take it anymore he said that's enough although I'm sure a lawyer loved having meth under his roof oh my gosh I know he was like she's got to get out of here my business (laughs) (laughs) so um so yeah so that was that was definitely a big moment um you and I were talking earlier and I just want to touch on this briefly about um how you think 
your uh, what you experienced as a child from your grandfather, how it affected your uh, intimate relationships, how in in your teenage years and in your present present day. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't think I really knew what healthy intimacy was, um, or a loving relationship, or you know what intimacy was supposed to be um so you know once it, would it be fair to say it was it was always about power and control it was always about power and control and it was shameful there was a lot of shame um unless i was flippant about it i guess if i didn't care about sex like it didn't mean anything but a physical reaction then that was okay um, if it meant more than that, I didn't know what to do or I was terrified. Um, of, of being abandoned? Or, I think so, or yeah. Or being stuck? Of being, I think of being abandoned or being hurt, you know, by somebody. I, I just always wanted to protect myself from being hurt um, because my first sexual experience was hurt, you know, it was painful. Um, so... I think I just, I think sex was always negative and I was tr always trying to make it positive. And to me that meant like being promiscuous, like party atmosphere, like I'll have sex with this person and that person and it doesn't matter. It's just fun. It's just a fun thing that you do. You know, there's no attachment. So I think, you know, throughout my teens, um, before I ever had like a really serious relationship, it was kind of about that. What would it feel like when you fell for a guy and you weren't going to be the one to cut it off and be flippant about it? What what feelings would come up and how would you act in the relationship or did that never happen? Well, usually my pattern of relationships when I was younger was um, I would really like a guy and then I would somehow get him to be my boyfriend. <laughs> and then a week later I was over it. You know, and that is so common for people that were sexually abused. Is it's, it? Yes. Oh my god, it's so, so common. crazy. It's it's all about because you know you don't once that person, it, I think, wants something from you emotionally. There's that fear of being invaded or overwhelmed, yeah. and you want to get the fuck out. Yeah, and the, <laughs> and the sex in the beginning gives the illusion that there's love and that mm -hmm. there's intimacy. There's a high to it. I was also uh, reading that there was a study recently that people who've been sexually abused have higher levels of oxytocin in their brain when they're uh, engaged in, in sexual really? activity. So it's inherently more uh, addictive. And the, yeah. other, and the other thing that... Uh, I hear a lot of, and I've experienced in my life, is people who have been sexually exploited when they're in long-term relationships, they go through periods of shutting down completely. Yeah. So it's like you can be really promiscuous before you're in a relationship, mm -hmm. and then you get into a relationship, you clam and you up. shut down, and yeah. you clam up, and what can yeah. you can you talk about yeah. that? Um, that's definitely been my experience. Um, you know, I was very promiscuous. Uh, throughout my you know teens into my 20s um and i actually um i so my grandfather that happened when i was you know a child and then i was actually raped 
um, when I lived, I used to live in Carmel. Uh, I worked in a restaurant there, and I was followed home one night. I lived at the end of a road, down some stairs, which is like the worst place for a single girl to live. Um, and a guy followed me home from a bar. Um, you know, I was drunk at the bars every night after work and stumbling home, and I'm sure some guy said, oh, perfect, you know. Um, I actually knew who he was. Um, and Did he know you knew who he was? Yeah. I know his name. I'll never forget his name. And I never did anything about it. Um, and I don't know, that's something I haven't really, I mean, I've explored it in therapy, like talked about the actual incident, but about me doing anything about it. Do you think he knows it was rape? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so after that as well, like I was, I was promiscuous before that, which for a long time made me think that it wasn't rape because I thought I brought, I was drunk. Um, you know, I... I'm sure, you know, that typical, I'm sure I wanted it or something, you know. I but, must have been getting off, giving off a vibe yeah, exactly. as, if, as if that gives the, the other person permission. Exactly. And I mean, I finally had to get real with myself and say, I mean, it was anal. So I didn't want that. I know I didn't, you know. But so between my grandfather's abuse, that abuse, I went on a downward spiral after that you know, of being even more promiscuous, which a lot of people who've never been through something like that think, and I guess some people shut down completely, um, but a lot of people think, how could you do that? Why would you even want sex after that? Well, it was about taking power back, about controlling the situation, you know, and I had to go and and make sure that I that I let a guy do that to me. Yeah. You know, even though I hated it and I didn't want it, I had to let it happen so that I knew that it happened at one point that, on my terms. That that same act or just sex in general? Both. Yeah. That same act and sex in general. And you're you're not the only person that I've heard. I've heard many people share that that it, and and anal sex which they had never liked before, they were anally raped and then that was something that they either sought out or it became very pleasurable to them so then they're in the conundrum of yeah. i must have secretly exactly. wanted it and exactly. that that is the biggest curse to to people that don't realize that if you really wanted it that would have been around before that thing exactly. happened to you exactly it's a total mind fuck it's like, a total mind fuck yeah it's yeah it's horrible for anyone any any sort of violation like that um so yeah i i you know it was all about taking control back i was very promiscuous it didn't help that i was drunk all the time and on coke all the time you know um i struggled with my addictions um i was away from home I, you know i had moved seven hours north to a job where i knew no one and i was meeting new people in this town and i could do whatever i wanted you know nobody was watching and I got some sort of pleasure out of that, you know? Um, so yeah, I was, I was, I acted out sexually for sure. You know, um, things I, I guess wish I'd never done, but they made me who I am today. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you had to experience all of these things that, that happened to you. I mean, thank you. <laughs> me too. But you know, I'm. I'm not. I'm never going to say I'm glad that they happened, but they happened, and I, I'm glad I can talk about them, 
and it's not they're not secrets um, because I think that would be a lot worse for me. Yeah, you and uh, Monica and I were talking before we started rolling um, just about stuff that maybe we would or wouldn't share uh, on the podcast, stuff a little kind of more in-depth than, than what we've talked about. And um, it was a very freeing conversation to be able to um, talk about about some of that stuff without shame. And one of the things that I find very liberating um, is talking to somebody else who's been exploited and talking about how it's affected us and how it's affected our sexuality and not feeling any shame about that because I feel like there, this f- group of people who've experienced something similar, they're the only people that can, maybe them and therapists are the only people that can truly understand in their heart what it is that you that you feel yeah yeah I mean people can be empathetic you know and and I appreciate that like my husband you know I appreciate it so much every day um, his understanding of what I go through but for him to fully understand the struggles sometimes you know where I can have a great week and then one day I literally want to crawl under the covers and not come out you know and I don't want to talk to anybody or you know for him to fully understand that feeling he won't because he doesn't go through that you know uh, so yeah to to have a group and that's why I love listening to this show so much to have a group you know and to know that other people have been through it and, and struggle like that and it's it doesn't make us weak um, feels really good and, and it does take a lot of the shame out yeah, one of the things that we were talking about is that feeling when your partner is giving you the signals that they want to have sex and this feeling comes over you like it's the last thing in the world that you want to do. And, and like this, I don't know about you, but I get like this wave of shame, like, like what the fuck is your problem? <laughs> you have an attractive partner. Yeah. Who you can trust. Yeah. Who wants to have sex with you, but there's something inside you that you just don't want to be touched. Somebody who wants to make you feel loved and who loves you and who thinks that you're awesome, amazing, attractive, sexy, and all of that feels disgusting. I think you just hit on it. Is somebody that is attracted to you, mm-hmm. that thinks you're these things because it's counter to what we have in our head which is we're dirty we're disgusting Mm -hmm. we're weak we're weird yes etc etc so it's like who wants to be around somebody whose perceptions are completely wrong Uh, yeah it's like yeah yeah it's so i think because we have like our sexual experiences early on were negative of like you're not i mean whatever happened made us feel you're not good enough you're not you know you don't matter you don't matter and then when we matter to someone it's this weird turnoff like why should i bother with somebody that yes that, haven't you, know? you talked to the others yeah i said don't you know who i am <laughs> like it's so crazy and and it's so you know it's sad that you know like my husband has to go through that with me but i'm so grateful that he does because i know that i will get through it you know and get past it and 
I'm sure it's frustrating for is, him. Is it able, is he able to not take it personally? Um, now. Yeah, I think before it was a little bit harder for him, but I really just have to continue to keep the open lines of communication with him. Um, I think he'll, he takes it personally if I'm not communicating, if he just thinks that I'm being eh, you know? Mm-hmm. But And I think there's a responsibility, you know, even if you're a sex abuse survivor, when you're in a committed relationship with somebody, yes, you're, you're, you deserve your, your feelings and everything, but you owe it to that person to begin to work on it, to, yes. to, to, to try to move forward every day, to be yeah. in therapy, you know, be in support groups, whatever. But to do, to just sit there and say, you know, I don't want to do this because this stuff happened to me mm-hmm. is um, shirking your responsibility as a partner. Then don't get into a relationship. If you're not yes. willing to work on yourself and you're a, an abuse survivor, um, that that's, yeah. that's... And, you know, there have been days where I have thought that and I have thought to myself I should have never gotten married I should have never gotten married because I knew this was going to happen and I knew I was going to feel this way but you know what I did get married so buck up and <laughs> deal with your shit you know because um, yeah it's not fair to him for me to just you know I don't want to do it because I was raped I mean what's he going to say to that like he's gonna be like, too bad, we're going, <laughs> you know. So that's not fair of me to say that to him. Um, yes, it's fair of me to get upset and have my moments and whatever. But I do need to be actively working on it for him, for us, for our marriage. You know, that's what it is when you're a partner. And I think too, part of the the intimacy, you know, sexual intimacy. It, you, you know, should be an expression of the emotional intimacy that is the foundation that it kind of springs from and i think you can invite that partner in as you're as you're processing these things talk about what you went through in therapy what's been painful to you what memory is fucking with you what part of yourself that you're struggling with you know i i try to share those things with my wife because i go through these ups and downs where i want to shut down or you know where i'm feeling connected to her and i see that she's seeing me and hearing me and feeling me um but i think we because we shut down as kids, it's like lifting weights talking about what's going on inside of us emotionally. Yeah. Do you do you or at least I, do you feel like that? Yeah, I feel like I feel like if I bring it up, whoever's on the other end, you know, usually my husband is going to be like, "Oh, here we go again." You know, <laughs> here we go again. Uh, you know, she's bringing that up again, or beating a dead horse, or you know, or or I have a really hard time asking for help which I think goes along with a really hard time sharing things like that with my husband or with people that are close to me because I don't want to seem like I'm complaining. I feel like I'm constantly complaining, you know, and I'm always like, I'm sorry, I'm complaining. I'm complaining about complaining. Um, And you told your mother you were being molested by your grandfather and she believed him. Yeah. If that doesn't set somebody up for a difficulty being intimate and trusting that they're going to be felt by that person. Yeah. How how did how is there a bigger betrayal? Yeah, than exactly. your mother doing that. Yeah, exactly. So I have a hard time. You know, yes, I feel like I'm. I don't want to put my shit on other people, because they're either going to just take the information, throw it away, and walk away, or they're going to be like, "Oh God," <laughs> you know, what a mess she is. You know, which I'm sure is how ha- I'm. You know, I'm sure that's happened, but. 
But the soothing part would they they would feel as disgusted by you as you do, which would be nice. True. <laughs> True. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a work in progress and it, I'm so lucky that I have somebody, you know, who is willing to go through it with me and and, and to stand by my side, you know, cuz well, he's stuck now. We have a kid. <laughs> he sounds like a great guy, like he a really a patient guy. guy. I mean, he's so patient. He's so patient. The spouses I mean, of abuse victims, you know, there there should be a, a wing in heaven. Yes, there for for be. them, for their patience and their yeah. and their understanding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not easy. Not easy for us. Not easy for them. Well, it's time to give some sponsor love, and one of our sponsors today is Nature Box. I love me some Nature Box. I love having their snacks laying around the house. I got them in my car. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I let my blood sugar get a little bit too low, it uh, my depression uh, puts on a leisure suit and comes out to dance. So... Um, I think Nature Box is just the perfect uh, variety of snacks to have uh, around the house. You can get savory, you can get uh, sweet. Um, Nature Box uh, each month you can get a delicious uh, box of uh, of snacks, and uh, they're they're smarter snacks. None of the garbage that you find in other other snacks. No high fructose corn syrup or hydrogenated oils or artificial uh, artificial. Suddenly, I'm from New York. No artificial flavors or colors. Uh, each snack faces strict quality standards and are nutritionist approved. Um, so, check them out. Uh, some of my favorites are the oat brand dip and sticks, the blueberry nom noms, the um, whole wheat raspberry fig bars. Uh, those are like getting kicked in the face by uh, somebody wearing raspberry boots. I highly recommend them. Um, you can order different sizes of them. And uh, the thing that uh, uh, I think is pretty cool too is you can choose to have a surprise box of, of snacks sent to you and that's a great way to get introduced to their dozens and dozens of different uh, different snacks um, so wh- what more do you want to know it's convenient you got automated delivery um, it's delicious go to naturebox.com slash happy hour and get 50% off your uh, first box want to also give some love to our uh, relatively new sponsor, uh, PillPack. Uh, it's a pharmacy that makes it super, super simple to uh, take the medications uh, at the right time. PillPack delivers pre-sorted medications uh, directly to your door, uh, which saves time and reduces a huge amount of stress. Uh, listeners get the first month free when you sign up through pillpack.com slash happy hour. I don't know about you guys, but uh, my memory ain't too good. And there's many days where I go, oh shit, did I take my meds? I can't remember. The nice thing about PillPack is they come on this roll where you pull one out. They're they're marked every day. And um, it's it, it's simple because you, you know all the meds you need for that day are right there. So if you're going to go on the road, just tear off the ones you need, throw them in your suitcase. And the other thing that I love about them is you don't have to wait in line at the pharmacy. That is, uh, I hate it. I hate it. And I judge everybody in front of me. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at you getting that medicine. Oh, God. I'm glad I'm not you. (laughs) PillPack sends prescriptions to 33 different states and non-prescriptions to all 50 states. You can get uh, prescriptions, vitamins, over-the-counter meds. Uh, all of them arrive in easy-to-open packets. Never fill a pill box again. Um, I think it's just an awesome idea. Well-executed, 
and perfect for us crazy folks. So uh, go to PillPack.com and uh, and check it out and get uh, your first month free when you sign up at PillPack.com slash happy hour. Talk about being the spouse of an active person in the military. Has he gone overseas? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we've been married for three years. Um, and he's been in almost 10. He's in the Navy, um, but he's not really in the Navy. He's in the Navy, but he has always worked with the Marines. He's a corpsman, which is a medic. Um, so initially he was like, you know, with a, uh, combat battalion out of North Carolina and, you know, they did combat deployments to Iraq. Um, and he was their medical. So he's seen some shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that was before we were together. Um, he is an amazingly grounded, just well-rounded person. Um, it affects everybody differently. Um, and he, it meaning combat, combat, yeah. yeah. Um, and he handles it very well from what I can see, you know, you never really know somebody 100%, but from what I know of him, he handles it very well. Uh, his brother's in the military as well, and, and same. They just have this demeanor. They kind of separate their work from, to them it's work, and that's what they do when they're at work. And then uh, they come home and, and they try and, you know, assimilate back in. So when we were together, uh, before we got married, he went on a combat deployment. It was to Iraq and Kuwait, and it was not super active, um, but, you know, he does search and rescue. So now he got away from the Marines and now he's um, he does search and rescue. So they kind of like airlift people. But, you know, things were dying down um, over there when he was there. Things were moving you know, to, into Afghanistan and everything. So he has not been to Afghanistan, um, but done multiple tours to Iraq. Um, and it was really hard. Uh, he was gone for seven months. And, you know, every day... You, we got to talk a lot because of, he was on a base, a medical base there. Um, and so we were very fortunate with that. But every single day you think you're am scared. I, am I going to get the call? Yeah, you're scared every day, you know? And it's not like you're terrified every day because it's life and you have to just go through it. But yeah, it's a thought every day and it's scary. Do you feel it in your body when you think about that? Like, is it... Is this something you feel in the pit of your stomach, or is it just a, a thought that flashes through your head? At the time? Yeah. I think it's um, just a thought that flashes through your head unless you read something or hear something on the news. Or there were times where I'd be on the phone with him, and like the alarm would go off for him to... It would be a medevac, and you know, um, he'd be like, gotta go, medevac, and he would just hang up. And it's like... <gasps> you get that feeling of like, he's probably just picking up a kid with a broken arm, but like, you don't know, you know, he's flying or he's not flying the helicopter, but he's riding on a helicopter into a combat zone um, and picking up an injured person, whatever has happened. And that's scary, you know? So yeah, at those times, I think it's something you feel in the pit of your stomach and that makes you sick and gives you kind of the shakes. Um, but on a daily basis, I think it's just something you 
don't what like. Is, what does it feel like when he when he's getting ready to come home and when he comes home? I mean, there's a ton of excitement. Um Tons of excitement. He's actually gone right now. Um, he's not overseas. He's in Virginia going to paramedic school, but we've still been apart for five months. So it's kind of like a deployment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just not in severe danger. Um, so a lot of excitement, a lot of anxiety, <laughs> naturally for me. Uh, what is the anxiety about? I've been doing this by myself for a while. Um, is it going to work? not our marriage, but like, is it going to be okay when he gets back? And am, am I going to get pissed off because he's changing Bella's diaper the wrong way? Or, you know, mm-hmm. um, am I going to be nervous around him? Am I, it's like new again, you know, it's like you're, is there a feeling of that? Here comes moments of feeling pressure to be intimate. Um, yeah, there's that. And I mean, I guess after like, after five months, you know, of not seeing your spouse, like you're welcoming the intimacy. Um, but at the same time, you know, for me, it's like, I'm welcoming it. And then I'm like, okay, but then are we going to fall back into that pattern that I have of, we had sex last week. Do we have to have sex again this week? (laughs) You know, and which I imagine must be so frustrating for him when he's yes. been away for, for five months and you probably feel that. Pressure. And, and guilt, yes. right? Yes, tons. Are you able in, in those moments, though, to feel compassion for yourself and connect it to what you experienced as a child? Yeah, but I still beat myself up a lot. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I do. I just, I don't know yet how to stop that. Um. So, yeah, I, I kind of get down on myself. You know, I, I was recommending uh, to Monica before we were rolling um, uh, sex survivors, sex abuse survivors, a support group or some type of support group that helps you um, deal with past trauma and, and learn how to become more intimate. And um, I I think they're so so fucking helpful because um you know you I, I feel like you can talk to a therapist and that that is certainly its own great thing but there's nothing like a room full of people that know what it feels like inside your soul yeah i'm gonna have to check that out yeah i, yeah. I, I really recommend it and there's yeah. a ton there's a ton of different ones um you know go search on on the internet or email me the interwebs. Um, the interwebs. <laughs> um, so what what does it bring up? There's so many parts of your story. I mean, you I are know. you are like a highlight reel know, of all the issues we deal on the show. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It's, uh, oh, it it keeps it it keeps it uh, moving. Um, what's it like being a mom now? What is what oh, what feelings gosh. does that bring up in you? Well, blanket statement is that I have never felt more insane in my life. Like it makes you feel, it makes me feel crazy. How? Um, Because there's such high highs and low lows um, without drugs and alcohol, you know? I mean, it's just, it's really hard. And I don't know that this is everybody's experience as a mother, but um, I was never around babies until I had my baby. I had never changed a diaper until I had my baby. Um, 
I never thought I wanted kids until I met my husband because I never thought anybody would be a suitable father <laughs> to my children. Um, so it's really hard. I'm also uh, somewhat of a workaholic. So balancing that and having a young child um, can be maddening. Uh, so where, where, where does the workaholism get put into what kind of stuff? Um, I do, well, I'm a chef by trade, but I do um, social media marketing and um, private events for a restaurant in Orange County. Um, that's my main gig. Uh, it takes up a lot of my time, and I love it. I really do. Like, I can't stop. <laughs> so does the baby get watched by somebody yeah, or going so to daycare? She goes to daycare. We have mm-hmm. military subsidized daycare, which is amazing. Um, she goes three to four days a week and then I work from home most of those days. Uh, so, but yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I, I feel like I was a poor time manager before I had my baby and now I'm really a poor time manager. And I think most of the times when I get frustrated with parenting, it's because there's something I want to do that it's getting in the way of. <laughs> so I haven't learned to fully let go yet. Um, I have a hard time with that. But it's also, I don't want to make it sound like I hate being a mom. It's just really hard. You I know? would imagine it's hard too if you have that thing in your brain that tells you you have to do everything perfect. Yeah. And that anything you don't get to oh equals gosh. failure. It's insane and these are the issues that the support groups i was telling really? you about deal with because oh it's gosh. not about the sex that happened yeah. to us that's the last thing that you really talk about it i mean you do talk about that certainly in the beginning and sometimes to help other people feel less alone but it's really about the perfectionism and the feeling that we don't matter that's left with us and how that bleeds into all other areas of our lives and how it then becomes uh, so hard to be intimate with other people because we either think they're idiots for loving us or we're going to disappoint them or we're going to get hurt yeah i mean i have poor coping skills like bottom line you know because of everything that i've been through and the way i've been treated along the way after those events and have being a parent and then being a new parent and having poor coping skills. I mean, you have a lot of breakdowns as a new parent. And when I have a breakdown, it feels like the end of the fucking world, you know? And then on top of that, you know, my husband left when she was six months. So it's just, it's been me and the baby. And yes, we've had some help, but doing it by myself has been crazy. It's Plus, been crazy. I would imagine, too, you don't have those moments where the baby has its first thing and there's nobody to look across the room and go, did you see that? Yeah. That's got to... Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, yeah, it's... And for him, for it's hard for me. It's really hard for him. He's got to kill him. He's missing so it. much. Yeah. And I mean we joke around in a sense that, you know, I think she's going to start walking soon. And he's like, no, I want to be there for something. So I keep telling him I'll push her down you know, <laughs> until he gets back. But it's so true. It's, you know, when he gets back, she'll be almost a year old. That's really hard for him. And, and it's harder for him when I have a hard time dealing with him being gone and having the baby. And he hears that in my voice and he can't do anything. You know, that's really tough. You know, one of the things that that one of the great things that Teresa Strasser said on her episode was she talked about being a good enough mom. Yeah. 
That was a great episode. Do you think you can... Yeah. Do you think you can ever get to a point where you're just okay being a good enough mom yeah, and not I think being so. the perfect mom? I think so. And you know, it's interesting because I look at the way I was parented and, you know, I don't remember my mother hugging me until I was probably 18, 19 years old. She just wasn't a hugger. And she was a very strict parent in a sense of like, you've got to toughen up. And I've got to be conscious of that because if I can just love my daughter and show her love, um, you know, and obviously guide her <laughs> the right way, um, that's so much more than what I had. And that even if I'm, you know, not super mom, but if I can just love her more than anything and take care of her and make sure she doesn't get hurt I mean, she's going to get hurt, but yeah. <laughs> no huge harm in her way. I, I think I'm going to be okay, but it's just terrifying because I don't want to make any of the mistakes that my parents made. And I go to an extreme, like, you yeah. know, my parents don't have many pictures of me as a child. And it's like, I think I take so many pictures of her that it's, I'm going to be buried <laughs> in <laughs> photos. <laughs> before she's a year old, you know? So there's an extreme and I need to find the balance. Yes. But yeah, being a good enough mom. But I do remember her also saying something in that episode about how she felt like she just, that her husband and her son would be better without her and that she just wanted to leave. And I feel that sometimes, you know, um, when she won't stop crying and it's the middle of the night and I'm on the floor and I'm crying and I want to just walk away, you know? And a lot of moms don't talk about that. And it ha I know I'm not the only one. Oh, they they <laughs> do, but it's in the anonymous surveys yeah. and in the oh, emails okay. that I get. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean... A lot. There are times where I'm just like, I can't do this. Like, I physically cannot do this. This baby wasn't supposed to be mine. <laughs> like, what happened? There's wires got crossed or something. And I have to go. I have to leave now. You know, and I've had that feeling and it's like, I can't go anywhere, <laughs> but it's overwhelming, you know, I can't imagine. And I think it will get a little bit easier. I think it'll get easier and harder when my husband gets back because we're going to have to integrate, you know, with parenting together when he gets back. But there will be times where I can go to the store, you know, <laughs> and know that she's at home mm -hmm. with him and it's not a battle like right now a lot of things at her age you know are a battle like changing her diaper is a battle you know and I, I just think to myself does everything have to be so hard all the time you know that that feeling of this isn't right i just want to go i can't stand this one more minute uh, i can't imagine what that's like the closest i can come was sitting through oliver stone's last movie <laughs> oh my god then you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know how savages. Oh gosh, oh, that was in Laguna. Yes. Yeah, that was a horrible movie. A horrible movie. Great idea. Great premise. Just horrible. executed so. I've never seen such uninteresting, beautiful people. Yes. It's yes. Like I know. It, it was a. It was a. A J. Crew catalog that was somehow turned into 
Uh, I know it was so bad. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was not. It's an uh, embarrassment. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how his movies keep getting worse and worse. He started off with uh, Salvador, which is a great movie, although I don't think he directed it. I think he just wrote it. And then uh, Platoon, which is like one of my favorite movies ever. And then each one just got, I think with Natural Born Killers, I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) What's going on here? (laughs) But I I digress. Is is there, are there any other uh, seminal moments that you want to, uh, that you wanted to touch on? Oh, let's see. I wrote some down. Um, I think I may have gotten them. Yeah. We covered some great territory. I got to say, this has been one of the most uh, uh, productive. Really? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, my God, Monica, we we have talked about a lot of stuff, and I feel like um, not just in a way that that was um, glossed over it. You know, I feel like we... I got a real sense of what you experienced emotionally through through all these things and how they've all connected. Because yeah. to me, that's that's the goal of each episode is to kind of get a sense of what was it like in this person's body and soul when yeah. they experienced that stuff and how is it informed yeah. who they are today and how are they doing yeah. today. Yeah, good. Thank you so much. It was really nice getting to, to hear more of your story. I know we've uh, you know swapped emails a little bit and known a little bit through that but there's nothing like getting to see somebody face to face and yeah thank you so much <laughs> appreciate it. therapeutic wow really really enjoyed talking to uh to monica and uh we recorded that like six or seven months ago and um i asked her for some updates and she writes that her her husband is currently deployed so i assume that uh he is back in the navy or maybe he's deployed on uh, being with the coast guard uh, her daughter just turned one and a half. Um, she writes, it's still hard, but not as hard. I'm currently in a support group for sexual assault survivors. Uh, it has been so beneficial for me. Uh, I've started serious therapy to deal with all the sexual violations in my past, starting EMDR soon. EMDR is a, um, um, it stands for eye movement desensitization uh, re programming or reprocessing i can't remember but it really really helps with uh, ptsd and past traumas but uh she writes life is challenging but good thank you and the podcast for giving me the push i needed to process all of this shit um and uh she writes if you want to see pics of food i make and a baby uh i'm and a baby i've made i'm on instagram and twitter and it's at Moni Little Eats. That's uh, M-O-N-I-L-I-T-T-L-E-E-A-T-S. Thank you for that, Monica. Um, before I get to some surveys, want to uh, remind you there's a couple different ways you can support the podcast. Go to the website, mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. And um, you can support us with a one-time PayPal donation or recurring monthly for as little as five bucks a month. It's super easy to set up and it means the world to me. You can also support us by, uh, when you shop at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our uh, homepage right-hand side, not to be confused with the search box for our website itself. And um, know that if you're using the browser Firefox, the Amazon box won't show up. Um, So good luck to you there. Go fuck yourself. Um, 
Yeah, but if you if you enter uh, Amazon through our search portal, then Am- and you buy something, Amazon gives us a couple of nickels, and it adds up, and it really helps uh, support the show. You can also support us by going to iTunes, writing something nice, uh, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word through social media. Um, I wanted to share something with you guys. Um, oh, where do I begin? I've shared before about um, the getting triggered when I play hockey sometimes, how it's kind of a litmus test for where, where I'm at spiritually. And there is this league that I play in, and there's a female team that plays in this league that um, is really talented. They're they're really solid hockey players, great stick handlers. They know the game. They pass well. Uh, they clearly have a ton of experience, but there's a handful of players on there that are just the most unpleasant human beings I've ever played against in my life. And they're dirty. Um, they, When the ref's not looking, they'll slash you. Um, they, you know, like I like to make small talk with the, with the other team. You know, when we line up for a face-off, maybe I'll joke about how old I am and how tired I am and I can't wait for the game to be over. Or I'll compliment them, say, you know, that was a nice shot you had back there try to make small talk with him they don't even look you in the eye and it's like it's like i represent or our team represents um some type of pain in their life and i'm sure you know being women they've had unpleasant or traumatic experiences with men you know either being abused or told they shouldn't play sports or what what whatever but I, it really gets under my skin that it's like they don't even see me as a human being. And there's one in particular who talks shit. She's she's dirty. Um, and I try not to engage because I found my anger getting out of control. And because they're women, I'm not going to fight them. I'm not going to. Because if it were a man doing that, the, the gloves would be off and, uh, and I'd be getting my ass kicked. Um, but I've never hit a woman and uh, hope to die never having hit a woman and um, it's I sat out one game because I was like you know this they just get under my skin too much and it's it's not worth it and I talked to a met her in my support group I talked to my therapist and they said well you know if you want to try it again just see what kind of headspace you're in that day and if you want to play play and um and so I decided to to do it. And for most of the game, I just endured their bullshit. The cross-checking, the shit-talking. Um, it, And I was really fine until there was a... And, and I mean, there was some serious shit-talking. And it, and it so clearly has feels like they're projecting whatever their shit is onto me. You know, there's one player they have who's fairly masculine and I made a comment about the slashing you know becoming ridiculous and for some reason the refs don't call it I guess they think they're not hitting us that hard but they're like two-handed chops on our upper body and they're relentless with it um and I made some comment about it and like like a rocket ship coming out of her mouth she said why don't you shove it in your dick sucker and I was just like wow I actually laughed out loud you know, like their faces contorted with hate. And I, yeah, I was letting it all go. You know, one one of the women had, uh, when you're playing defense, part of your job is to clear the other team out when they're standing in front of your goalie. And so, you know, you, you push them. And 
completely acceptable and normal part of the game. Some people will use their stick to push them. You know, they'll hold their stick parallel to the ice and push. I don't do that because I think you can hurt people doing that. And it's also considered cross-checking, and which is illegal. So I used, kind of stiff-armed her with my hand and pushed her back a little bit, and she cross-checks me, you know, across the chest. Ref doesn't call it. Figured, let it go. The game's almost over. We were winning 4-2. to two. Uh... I accidentally tripped her about a minute later. I could call for the penalty. I have no problem with that. It was a penalty. My stick accidentally, I was trying to poke the puck. It went to her skate. I went over there, tried to give her a hand, apologized. She wouldn't even look at me. So there's 30 seconds left in the game, and I have the puck. And um, and all of a sudden, one of their players is attacking me with her stick, slashing me practically underneath my neck and I fucking lost it and I shoved her away and the rest of the team acted as if I had pulled my dick out and told them all to suck it it was outrage um just snarling faces at me and and I just screamed out loud and a part of me wanted to go to the hateful place you know what I mean to 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 go for the jugular and make it about them, you know, the, say all the the horrible things that, that men say to, to women when they're angry. And I didn't because I was like, you know what? I That's not going to make me feel better. And so I just said what I would say to anybody. I just screamed out loud, you are the worst fucking sports I have ever played against. Lose with dignity. And um, it I felt so disturbed on the way home. It was like my body had absorbed poison. And here I am five or six days later, and when I meditate, it's still coming up in me, things I want to say. And I go back and forth having empathy for them because I can tell that many of them are wounded and angry, and I represent something or somebody who has hurt them. But part of me is fucking pissed off because I'm a nice guy. And I'm trying really hard. And it's like they, it's like me and my teammates bring up their male shit and they bring up my female mom shit. And so I've just decided I will no longer um, play against them. And part of me feels like a pussy. There you have it. Let's get to some surveys. This is, and you know, the other part of me is I feel like because I won't fight them, and I think they know that, I feel like I'm a bear in a cage that they're poking with a stick. And part of me just wants to open that door up and uh, hurt them. But I can't and I won't. So instead, I fucking babble to you guys. God bless you. This is from the Being Hospitalized survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Smooth Flappy Pappy. Love that name. Uh, he was hospitalized because he had a seizure as a result of long-term benzo withdrawal. Um, there's nothing worse than being rushed around, injected with heavy drugs, and feeling like you have no real say in the doctor's decisions. Being as I had a seizure, I was not uh, of entirely sound mind, and I was told if I refused medical attention that the seizure could warrant a psychiatric hold. In essence, I was forced to take more of the drugs that initially landed me in the ER. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Lars. He is bisexual in his 20s. 
raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, a strictly overprotective homeschooled Christian home, mother with anger issues, father perhaps bipolar, though I didn't really notice at the time, never been sexually abused, not sure if he's been physically or emotionally abused. Um, any positive experiences with your uh, abusers or potential abusers? Yes, to both. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts, frequent violent and to others disturbing um, of frequently violent to others and um, disturbing homicidal fantasies, sometimes aimed at a particular victim, other times not. Darkest secrets, I'm sexually attracted to some children, not only underage post-pubescence, but true children. I like to touch people without their knowledge or record them without their knowledge. I used to steal all the time for no reason at all, throwing away what I stole almost immediately, and I was willing to let another take the fall. Um... Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, smelling, uh, touching women's feet and butts, being stepped on or sat on without their knowledge. That seems kind of difficult. Being shrunken or shape-shifted and pissed and shitted on, put into the mouth or ass, trapped in a sock or shoe or under the covers near the feet, having sex, making out with someone without their knowledge, uh, i.e. in the body of their lover. Oh, I see. Okay. These don't necessarily... um, abide by the rules of reality. Uh, I feel fine. I've actually shared this before with a few people. I just don't like saying these things out loud. Writing them out is fine, and then I almost don't care who reads it. It's not so much that I'm ashamed as that saying it in words, hearing the words, make it sound perverted or somehow not as beautiful as it is to me. Um, Well, first of all, I want to send you a hug. And The other thing I would say is if, if these are you know the the dark secrets where you are crossing other people's boundaries um that that to me is not beautiful because you are potentially um like the recording people without their knowledge or touch peeping touching people without their knowledge um that's not that's not very cool and that can really fuck some people up but maybe maybe you were just referring to the thoughts that are that are in your head um but just know that that can deeply, deeply affect somebody else, um, violating their boundaries and their and their privacy. As if that wasn't obvious. This is from the being hospitalized survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Lady Killer. Uh, that name kind of discur- d- disturbs me a little bit. Um, Why were you hospitalized? My ex-wife cheated on me. I blacked out and woke up in a state hospital ward. Um... I'm not sure if it helped me get better as much as it helped me to act normal enough to get out and stay out. I was let out with a 60-day supply of three very heavy narcotics and no support. Wow, that sounds like some... I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I just cut myself off there. I was going to weigh in, but... I was pre-med. I am not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself nobody or everybody, depending on how you ask. Uh, he is straight, uh, heteroflexible, um, in his 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, was the, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was manipulative as a child and often got female friends to sit on me. 
Um, I also had, wow, what a similarity between the, the previous one. I also had oral sex with at least two people as a child, one of whom was my cousin. I think that means I'm abusive, but I'm not sure. I also masturbated by holding my breath in class in the fourth grade. Uh, it was weird. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Been emotionally abused. My father is incredibly manipulative and ruthless. He kidnapped me as a young boy, and I have had fractured memories ever since. He also taught me how to be a manipulative monster, and I have a very hard time not using the techniques he has taught me. I have a voice in my head that I call the ghost of my childhood, which I think is a direct result of that abuse. Any positive experiences with your abusers? My father bribed me with fast food and I lied to him without pause. He bought me a stuffed beluga whale once. Then again, he also made me a trophy, the loser award, which I got for Christmas. I guess that kind of pans in the wash. I still hate the man's guts. Wow, he sounds fucking sadistic. Um deepest darkest thoughts i'm absolutely terrified that the web of lies i've used to keep myself away from emotional attachment will collapse and take my friends and family with it i have unwanted suicidal thoughts so often that don't bother me anymore i have my death planned and it involves being done in by artillery while fireworks go off i have a huge fetish for having women sit on my face and suffocate me with my consent if i'm not careful in public place i'll start thinking about that and then i feel really awkward if my girlfriend was okay with it i'd ask her to kill me that way i'm ashamed of how old i feel i often will think about how undeserving of work people are i judge quickly and i'm ashamed of how deeply a single mistake on a person's end can make me hate them i'm ashamed of how much effort it takes for me to stay normal it seems so natural to everyone else Darkest Secrets, the aforementioned childhood sex thing is a big one. So is the fact that I decided to punish the sex drive out of me with syringes in high school. I bled myself in high school to punish feelings of arousal. I am terrified of myself, and I don't know what from my child childhood is even an accurate memory. I almost automatically look for things that could kill me. I can feel an urge to run in front of a bus or to throw hot coffee at friends, both courtesy of the ghost of my childhood. And I just have to weather it. I don't want to harm anyone, but I feel these weird compulsions that I have to resist at all costs. Um, sexual sexual fantasies, um, having a woman sit on my face with my consent and being unable to get her off of me while I struggle to breathe is a big one. This is sometimes in public and sometimes the result of being betrayed by some unknown force. The idea of being retired deliberately after being rendered a slave due to economic misfortune and my partner's economic misfortune is a common one too. I only share them with women that I feel an emotional connection to. Sex without love is is a little better than masturbating into a sock and I find it awkward and unpleasant so I've only told my one and current girlfriend. Fortunately, she's also a bit kinky, and we found happy mediums, which makes our sex life pretty good. Um, I'm so lucky to have her. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would have loved to have been able to tell my grandfather that I would do him and our people proud. I identify with him to the extent that I want to change my name to include his as a middle name, and I've always been amazed by his tenacity and quiet genius. I only knew him for a few years, but he was a better dad than my father growing up. Without him, I would only speak English. I guess I really just want to know what he would think of me. Oh, that's so touching. 
what if anything do you wish for? I often wish that I could reset my life, keep the characters the same, but reshuffle the bad stuff in my life to see what would happen if I'd gotten a better hand at childhood. Have you shared these things with others? I share very little with anyone. I've never stated all of this stuff at once before. My father taught me to hide myself behind lies, and I keep building lies up that prevent me from telling everyone what I really want to tell them about me. I also don't know what's true in my memories anyway, so it's difficult actually um, to really know. How do you feel after writing this stuff down? Better, actually. I can hide from spoken word, but it's not so easy from the written. It's not even a proper beginning to fixing this catastrophe, but it's a damn good motivator. Um, what would you like to share with anyone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Keep your head busy with whatever your passion is. If you have one, go nuts and let curiosity carry you out of the bad thoughts. I'm getting into model trains for that purpose while I don't have the money for model trains I sure would love to go to the train showings and see what people have made. Thank you so much for that. This is from The Awfulsome Moments. Um, This is a very brief one, um, but it kind of, yeah, just read it. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Beautiful Disaster. When I was robbed at gunpoint at the age of 19 while working for a bank, I stayed calm, cool, and collected while having a gun held to my head. Then after he left, I hid under my manager's desk. Awfulsome. Thank you for that. So sorry I had to experience that. This is... From the hospitalized survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself, I was hospitalized. Um, Oh, no, I'm sorry. She calls herself Ellen. Uh, She is uh, between 18 and 19. I'm going to assume she's 18 and a half. Why were you hospitalized? I was extremely suicidal. Uh, I felt safe in the hospital. That's the only thing I can say about it. It didn't make me less suicidal or less self-harming, but I felt safe. It was invasive with carers around me 24-7 watching me and making sure I took my meds and didn't do anything but it felt safe they didn't just settle with I won't do anything they actually made sure I didn't do anything this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by Lily she is um, pansexual um, and polysexual multiple genders not necessarily all um She's 15. Wow, that's... I'm always amazed at um, how young people... um, I suppose a lot of people know by the time they're six or seven what what they like, what uh, makes them tick. Anyway, um, she's never been sexually abused, never been physically abused, not sure if she's been emotionally abused. My partner can be manipulative about apologies. I often fear standing up for myself because I'm afraid I will make them upset. Every apology they give is accompanied by, I can't do anything right, I should die, you must hate me. This is for simple things like making a joke that hit a little too hard with big things. It almost always boils down to them saying they'll kill themselves to make me happy. I would extricate yourself from that relationship because that's somebody that really needs uh, to heal and is extremely um, manipulative. You know, that one always really bothers me when people threaten to kill themselves as their their ace in the hole. Um, darkest thoughts. I often think of myself as an alien or some type of celestial being. 
I feel that I don't belong on this planet and that I need to go away, possibly by death, although I wouldn't call myself suicidal. Often I feel like a liquid that must be absorbed by the universe. I've witnessed one death of a beloved dog. I often think about where he went. I don't believe in anything, but I imagine him in the stars. I want to go there. I'm jealous of my friend's psycho psychosis and disassociation because I feel like she has achieved a state that I should be in instead. I should be in. Instead, I am stuck here, present in my thoughts, wishing I was anywhere but this planet that I don't understand. I feel horrible about this because I know she suffers a great deal. I am jealous of those who are forced into therapy or forced into any decision in general because I feel so much anxiety about the type of person my decision makes me. I feel like it's no coincidence that I always find myself in the odd spot that everyone ignores. I feel like something is telling me I don't belong. I don't feel like a person. I feel like this incredibly self-centered idea um, I feel this incredibly self-centered idea that I'm not sick, but the rest of the world is, that I was sent to watch and not to act, and that my ob observations are truly objective, and those of optimists are in inevitably wrong. Um, Darkest Secrets, once when my friend complained online about people not taking her, um, not mental health related, uh, her problems seriously, uh, I became so stressed out about what she thought of my issues that I cut myself after telling a few other friends and my followers on a website that I had the urge to when I did had the urge to when I did I accidentally cut too deep into my inner thigh. I had seen that when you guys fill these out please use punctuation. It is so hard when there are no periods in this to to read it. Um when I did I accidentally cut too deep into my inner thigh, I had seen the fat in my leg and thought, so this is what makes me so ugly and fat. It's just this fucking thing. I was so ashamed that I could not bring myself to ask my mom for wound closures, so I washed off the blood in the shower and began using band-aids. Didn't heal for weeks. I have a huge protruding scar on my leg that nobody but two friends know about. Um, I wonder if this lack of punctuation is the result of... Uh, people doing so much texting now because it is um at least on my iphone it is, <laughs> is it inconvenient the right word but the the period and the comma are on a different screen than the letters i gotta say steve jobs the ghost of steve jobs that's uh that's bad design it should uh it should be on that screen where the letters are well thank you for that um and thank you for not sharing uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I choose not to share these uh, discussing uh, these discussions make me uncomfortable. Uh, I think I would have been uncomfortable too reading the sexual fantasies of a fifteen year old, um, but maybe I would have. Have you shared these things with others? I have. They became upset and begged me not to kill myself. I don't want to kill myself, and I don't understand why they said that. I do because it's frightening for somebody that you care about to say that they want to kill themselves. Um, you know, I—that's a tough one because you want your you want your friends to know what you're feeling, but that is so heavy and they're so powerless to do anything. I think that's what upsets them, um, and they're afraid that then they're going to have the burden of whether or not you lived or died. So that's why I think it's good to call a suicide hotline. Or talk to somebody who's a professional when you're when that's that becomes more than a fleeting thought. 
Um, or if you're going to share it with that person, say that you're, you know, that you're, <clears throat> you're not enjoying, um, you're, I don't know, shut up, Paul. I just bored myself. This is, I want to read this one. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Stop apologizing. God damn it. Yeah, I'm going to read this last um, of the hospitalization surveys. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Runs With Horses. Uh, why were you hospitalized? I'm sorry. <clears throat> by the way, caught that cold on the plane going to speak uh, in Northern California about mental illness. Went very well. Thank you, um, those of you that came out to uh, to support that. It was really nice to um, see a couple of friendly friendly faces. Um, why were you hospitalized? Driving into a brick wall was all I could think about. Getting an appointment with a psychiatrist would take a month or more. In desperation, my mother helped me check myself into a hospital. At first, they turned me away, which resulted in a panic attack in the car. My mom took me back in and had them admit me. Uh, the initial hospitalization did more harm than good. I told my doctor that my mom was diagnosed with bipolar. I was worried and terrified of the possibility I too might have bipolar. At that point, I had never had any manic symptoms, just the gray dredge that is depression with some anxiety. The doctor started me on medication and didn't see the red flags when the medication started noticeably helping in just a matter of days. He released me and I went home. Not knowing any better, I thought the depression was over. To my horror, after a little over a week of starting medication, I was sent in my first full-blown manic episode. During this time, I stopped eating and sleeping, two of my lifetime favorite things. I thought I was God. I baptized my neighbor, blew through all my money, lost my job, and was admitted, 5150'd, to the hospital two more times. Come to find out some medication regiments are better than others if bipolar is a possibility. The initial medications pulled me out of the depression but earned me the title of uh, drug-induced bipolar. Why my doctor didn't see the red flags will always haunt me. I went through two years of over-medication over with other doctors. Anytime I'd say something was wrong, this one doctor would simply add another medication into the mix. My pharmacist continually warned me against the meds, referencing maximum dosages and drug interactions. By law, she had to, but she strongly urged me to find another doctor. My current doctor has cut my medication down to just one, and I am doing great. She listens and cares about my preferences, something I haven't had before. It was difficult to ask for help and made harder with improper treatment. Well, I'm so glad, um, runs with horses, uh, that you are feeling better. That is one of the most frustrating things about dealing with mental illness is the incompetent or indifferent caregiver. This is an awful moment filled out by um, Danielle. She's in her 20s. She writes, this is probably a little lame as far as awful moments go, but here it is. It had been about five months since my, since my sister had an appendectomy after suffering with stomach pain and an inability to eat for years. I was about 16, she was about 14. She was finally happy and eating everything she could, and she was no longer the sickly little girl she was growing 
she was growing up. She had put on some weight, but she was probably around the same weight as I was, smack dab in the normal range for height and age. And we were having a dinner party at my father's place. To be honest, I thought she looked great at the time. She was starting to really look like a woman and was regaining her confidence. It was a great time for her. As my sister was stuffing her face with pigs in a blanket, my stepmother looked at her and said, and here I thought Danielle was going to be the fat one. Simultaneously body shaming both of us with a comment veiled in a weird backhanded compliment to me. After she said that, everything slowed down as my sister and I looked up from the bounty of pigs in the blanket and stared at each other. We burst out laughing while everyone around us were on the edge of their seats, unsure of how to react. It was a beautiful bonding moment between sisters. Whenever I feel insecure about my weight, I remember that moment fondly as the moment I realized I was only ever the fat one in comparison to a sick prepubescent girl. I think that's an awesome, awfulsome moment. And finally, this is uh, from the ha- the. Oh, actually, this is an awfulsome moment as well. Could go as a as a happy moment too. Filled out by um, a woman who calls herself uh, Data. She writes, it was during the 2012 elections I'd come out to my family two years ago, but they still utilized the don't ask, don't tell policy. If I mentioned I was gay in any way, I could see my parents' shoulders physically tighten, their lips form into a straight line, and their silence end any conversation. Hold on one second. Um, I'd been home for a week and the tension was building. I tried to stay calm. My theory was that if I lost my cool, all of my sane, rational arguments would be cast out as a result of me being overly sensitive, a label which has been branded on me by my family since I was five. One Sunday night, we were all sitting at the family table. My sister had made a full dinner with multiple dishes to be passed around on the white tablecloth. My mother's cross collection hung proudly on the space between the windows that sat behind the kitchen table. I had just listened to a long talk about all of my sister's friends and who they were dating, thinking the entire time of how whenever I talked about my gay friends and who they were dating, I got blank expressions. A gap in conversation fell over the table. My stepmother mentioned that the Republican debates were on. I said I wasn't interested since I was not going to vote for any of them, to which um, she responded, but I thought you were a feminist. Why wouldn't you vote for Bachman? That was it. I threw my fork down, slammed my hands on the table, and stood up at my chair and screamed loud enough for all the neighbors to hear, I'm not going to vote for someone just because they have a vulva, and I'm gay, so I'm not going to vote for someone whose husband holds conversion therapy camps to molest confused gay kids. At the time, I was angry and hurt and sad. Today, I look upon that memory as what living gay in Texas is all about. Yelling vulva and gay under a myriad of crosses at your terrified conservative Christian family, knowing that the neighbors will be talking about you at church next Sunday. What an awful some moment to end on. Well, thank you guys so much <clears throat> for being a part of this uh, this community we're trying to build. And uh, makes me feel less alone, and I hope it makes you feel less alone because you are most definitely not alone. And thanks for listening.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.